0: But first, we are starting with that announcement from earlier, well, from about an hour ago.
1: So today, I have the task of confirming that our government is officially advising Canadians to avoid non-essential travel outside Canada. To those who were planning to travel, I say very clearly, now is not the time to travel.
0: So the advisory that had previously been in place is back in place just 10 days before Christmas. So we wanted to find out what exactly this means. It is an advisory. It is not a hard, fast rule. So let's bring in Claire Newell, the president and CEO of Travel Best Bets. And Claire, thank you so much for doing this busy day for you.
2: It is a very busy day. Right before I came on with you, Jill, I was actually writing a summary email to our staff. We've got um, so many agents with their clients kind of concerned. I think they heard the rumblings last night, and we're really waiting for this announcement because, in fact, so many people have vacations on the books over the holidays.
0: They they do. So let's go through some of, some of the issues. So what was announced today, even though the government is saying this is a drastic measure, what it is is it's the advisory to avoid non-essential travel, non-essential international travel. So let's start with travel insurance. For somebody who still feels comfortable traveling, does an advisory make it so they have to renegotiate that, or what does it do to travel insurance?
2: So they don't have to renegotiate their travel insurance will be valid on their trip. So just to backtrack a little bit, the advisory to avoid avoid non-essential travel was actually in place March the 13th through uh, 2020 and then actually right through until kind of late October of this year. It was lifted very quietly. It's now just gone back in place. So you may remember that people were traveling and travel insurance um, did come into effect probably June or July of 2020. So people who really had to travel and wouldn't without travel insurance were traveling. So there is no change to travel insurance.
0: All right. So let's talk then. I'm imagining you're getting a lot of questions from people saying, well, what does this change? Or does this change anything? Because like you said, so many people do have travel plans over the holidays.
2: Well, yeah, that's the thing. Um, most people that I have been speaking to are not changing their plans, um, but they are taking the government's advice, and that is be really cautious heading into the holidays and if you are traveling. So my advice is just to make sure that you, of course, wear your masks, socially distance, wash your hands, pack those masks and sanitizer. You're not leaving COVID behind you. You certainly don't want to contract it while you are at destination. Um, of course, there are certain places where the government has already advised against traveling to in parts of Africa. So um, nothing has really changed, though, Jill. The testing uh, coming and going has not changed. So if you needed a certain test to go somewhere, um, if, for example, to the U.S., you need to have a rapid antigen test still within one day of your trip. Not 24 hours, that actually changed just a little while ago. So if you have a flight, for example, on a Friday at 5 p.m., you can have that test done any time of the day on Thursday. And that's just to give people a little bit more leeway for the lab's opening.
0: All right. That is good to know. And still the same rules then coming back. Let's use the example because I know a lot of people are going to the States. So if we use that as an example, it's still the same rule as it is now. It could change, but you still, you don't need the test coming back within 72 hours. You do need the PCR test if you're more than 72 hours.
2: So all air travelers need uh, that PCR test done within 72 hours of boarding their flight if they've been out of Canada longer than 72 hours. Um, Announced about two weeks ago was the addition of another PCR test, not at uh, the passenger's expense, but the Canadian government is administering that at airports once you land. And you do need to um, quarantine, uh, self-isolate, until you get a negative test result. And that's actually for anyone coming from anywhere other than the U.S.
0: Right. And and there is still... The possibility though, while it's not a requirement if you're coming from the U.S., the U.S. is still exempt. You could still be pulled in for the random test.
2: Yeah, that random test is um, getting people about 1 in 15, 1 in 20 people, depending on which airport you're coming into. My brother had to do it just a couple of weeks ago coming back from a business trip. It took about um, 5 to 10 minutes uh, once he landed. So it's, it might be a little bit longer. Because of the holidays and the the actually part of this announcement said that the government did warn that travelers returning to Canada could face some longer lineups and delays. And that would be one of them.
0: Uh, And how do you respond to uh, during the announcement today? One of the issues that the ministers brought up was saying that if you do choose to travel Outside of Canada, there is the possibility the two things I think they were really saying that people should be concerned about. There's the possibility that rules could change. I don't know if they're they're suggesting they could bring back the quarantine or that that rules could change for reentry or the possibility you get this virus and you can't get on a plane to come back home.
2: Well, that has always been the case, that rules can change at any time, and that if you get or contract COVID while you're away, that you would have to, to quarantine at destination until you had a negative test result in order to be able to um, to fly home. That is one of the reasons that um, it's been our advice since the beginning is to have travel insurance that will cover you should you get COVID-19 while you're away. And most of the travel insurance packages that are now sold in Canada do cover you. Um, so that's a really important piece of the puzzle.
0: And when we talk about the safety of air travel, because I think that's another uh, issue with, with this variant being more transmissible, not more severe at this point, but more transmissible. Have we seen transmission when it comes to air travel, be it in airports or on planes, or do we know?
2: So I haven't seen any reports uh, in media come across my desk. I don't know if you have, Jill. Um, but one of the things that I've been advising my own family, because I had my son come back. He was at Queen's University, as you know, it shut down. <laughs> and so um, on his flight back, and my daughter is actually in Los Cabos, Mexico at the moment, and she'll be coming back on Saturday. I told them to be absolutely extra cautious. I wanted them to double mask. So... Uh, on their flight and in the airport. And I want them to wash down the the hard surfaces of their flight. Um, You need to protect yourself. The airlines are doing such a great job. They have been since the start of this pandemic. You and I have talked about this many, many times. Um, But it's your responsibility if you're traveling to make sure you protect yourselves and and those around you. Um, Some people may choose to wait and not eat while they're on board an aircraft. I chose not to on the last flight that I went on. Uh, I didn't take the meal that was provided to me. I just kept my mask on. Um, But that is a a personal decision. But as I said, the airlines have done a very, very good job uh, of their COVID protocols since the start of the pandemic.
0: Uh, And do you think there's a difference then for people who have flights, say, if you're going into the States or if you're going a little bit further in the States to Hawaii or if you're traveling uh, European travel? Is it different? Do you think should people be paying attention to kind of to what's happening, uh, even though the advisory is kind of for all international travel are, are some places, I guess, a bit more or a bit less desirable than others?
2: Yeah, you know, this is something that is I've been advising since the beginning, if people are starting to travel, they do look at the vaccine rollouts and the infection rates wherever they happen to be going. Obviously, Omicron has set, um, set things in motion a little bit differently and it seems to be more transmissible, as you mentioned earlier. So you can do that by going onto a couple of different websites. I really like the IATA. So I-A-T-A dot org. So I-A-T-A.org, and they have a portion of that website so that's called the destination tracker. I also like covid controls dot C-O. But it's important that you go into your your travel being really aware and being really prepared. And as I said before, you're not leaving this behind you. Don't let your guard down if you're choosing to travel.
0: And again, this announcement today with the advisory, like you said, this is the advisory that we had in place for several months. It's back in place. It doesn't mean stop all travel. It it really sounds like it means you need to take those precautions and you need to do even a little bit more homework if you choose, if you feel comfortable still traveling.
2: Yeah, that's right. That advisory to avoid non-essential travel is, is back. I mean, we had it in place for over a year and a half. It was lifted for like less than two months now, and now it's back. So um, nothing really changes. um, But they they did say that you need to be cautious if you are traveling into the holidays.
0: All right, Claire, thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure we will talk again. But thanks so much for breaking down this
2: announcement today. Thanks so much, Jill, for having me. Happy holidays.
0: We are going to talk more about the travel advisory that was announced earlier today. Right now, though, revisiting something we were talking about. And you'll recall last week when Ombudsperson Jay Chalk issued a report titled A Bid for Fairness. It took aim at the city of Penticton, which sold the house of a senior in a 2017 tax sale after the senior failed to pay taxes. She had the ta- the money to pay, but there was a bit of a breakdown in communication and uh, it ended up with the house being sold at a much lower price than what was market value.
3: It's not something that happens very frequently. And so uh, it certainly, uh, uh, in my view, uh, was something where the city officials should have uh, been alert um, to the significant difference between the sale price and the fair market value, the relatively small amount of taxes that we're owing, and should have taken more action at that point. And all they had to do, they didn't have to make nuanced uh, judgments about um, Ms. Wilson's capacity. All they needed to do was phone interior health, and that would be their job uh, to, to do that, uh, to do that uh, assessment work.
0: That was Ombudsperson Jay Chalk speaking on the program last week. Well, let's now bring in the mayor of Penticton. John Vasilaki is joining us on the line. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jill. How are you today?
0: I'm very well. How about you? Uh,
1: everything's going great now.
0: Uh, that, that is good. I, I know the city and city officials took a lot of heat over this. There has been a change of direction. So, what's the latest and what's happening with this?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say that the City Council of the day now wasn't in office at the time that this took place. It started back in 2014, I believe. Um, and it, it ended up on our plate just, uh, a, a, a few months ago. And really, it, really, it came into real view, uh, when the ombudsperson, uh, made it public. Um, Uh, Last Thursday, I believe it was, um, and especially when we didn't have uh, notice, we had less than 24 hours notice that it was going to become public so we could be prepared uh, as to what came out.
0: Uh, But when that report came out as well, it showed the recommendations and the only recommendation that hadn't been adopted was the one specifically made for Penticton Council, for for the city of Penticton to reimburse, to compensate the woman identified in the report as Ms. Wilson.
1: Yes. Um, The reason being that uh, when uh, this whole affair started back in 2014 um, the uh, process takes over it, it it doesn't go to city council at all uh, it's automatic uh, when the third year of non-payment of taxes uh, comes into being the process takes over and is done automatically without it going to city council now it the, the ombudsperson took over um, about two and a half years ago, I believe he started in, in investigating uh, what happened. Um, and it really came to us last Thursday as a city council to really discuss it and come up with solutions. We just didn't have enough time um, between last Thursday and uh, yesterday in, in order to make a decisions collectively uh, with City Council. Uh, and I think we, we made the right decision. Um, we gave Ms. Uh, Wilson uh, what the person um, uh, put forward or recommended uh, for City of Penticton to do, and we were very, very happy to do that and um, make her life a, a little bit better for the next 10, 20 years that she has left in her life
0: uh <laughs> And I think that's, that comes as a great change of events, a great news to people, especially uh, to Ms. Wilson. But in the, the colourful graphic that was in the ombudsperson's report, that report was done and had the information in it. And again, the only one of the five of six, the the only recommendation of the six that was had a big X in it was the one to compensate, the city of, Ven- uh, of Penticton to compensate. So somebody must have told the ombudsperson or made that decision at that point, saying we're not going to compensate
1: um, the uh, city council uh, decided uh, that we had to have um, a city council meeting to discuss this, and the decision has to be made at, at that meeting and like I said, we didn't have time between last Thursday when the um, uh, when the report was put out until yesterday. We had to have a meeting. We have to look at all, the, at all the information that was brought forward by the ombudsperson. And I can assure you that, uh, and I'm very, very disappointed with the ombudsperson, not because of the recommendation that he put forward, but he didn't include all the information, the hundreds of pages and the many hundreds of hours that our staff put together to give him all the information required for him to make a decision, he didn't include it in a final report so that the public would see uh, how far the, the city of Penticton went to help uh, Ms. Wilson out when it came time to pay her taxes. Um, And uh, we had to analyze it over the weekend and until yesterday afternoon when we made the decision uh, on and and I personally apologized to Miss Wilson. Um, We had to show compassion, um, compassion. the city of Penticton is a, is a compassionate community. We didn't want the rest of the province or the rest of Canada, because this story went right across from one end of the country to the other. We didn't want to, to, uh, that country to think that Penticton is heartless. We're, we're not that way. Um, we did the right thing. We made the right decision, even though, I believe personally that all the information that was put forward uh, by the city of Penticton was not included in the report.
0: So when you say the information wasn't included, are you talking about what happened with the previous council and what led to her home being auctioned off?
1: Yes, all the information and the, the, the many uh, letters and phone calls that were made to Miss Wilson uh, that... Um, her taxes were unpaid, and she should take care of it. And the person that was looking after her as, uh, did exactly the same thing. They didn't pay in it, any attention to all the reminders and the phone calls that were made to, to both Miss Wilson. And I don't know whether her sister, who was her guardian, um, actually got any phone calls, but Miss Wilson did.
0: So what, where is that where the communication breakdown was, do you think? Because Jay Chalk, the ombudsperson, said really when these cases happen, most of them are resolved. And it's only, I think he said, uh, as many as three a year that actually lead to a house being auctioned off and to somebody losing their house. So uh, yes. is it is it your your finding that the information that was missing from his report was the city did reach out and did try to resolve this? And for whatever reason, there was a communication breakdown there?
1: absolutely um the city always does uh, the best they can with the information that they have on hand uh to make sure that nobody loses their home, uh, their power isn't shut off if, in case they haven't paid their power. And I'm talking about other issues because that happens all the time where people don't, uh, don't pay uh, on time for their electrical or their water or whatever. We do the, the, the outmost uh, to make sure that it doesn't get shut off unless we get a hold of those folks to make sure that they take care of uh, their obligations. Um, and all the, the the time, the timeline is so important in this case that wasn't included uh, in that report by the ombudsperson.
0: Uh, you said that you've personally apologized or met with Ms. Wilson. And again, uh, her, her no, name. No, I
1: haven't met with
0: her. You haven't met, but you, uh, have you talked to I, her? I personally
1: apologized yesterday uh, at the city council meeting to her personally, like. Uh, it wasn't person to person, but I did it during the city council meeting.
0: So if she was watching the council or, or do you know if she got the apology? Um, well, I'm sure she might because
1: it's all over the media. So but you, um, you haven't I'm talked sure to her. she's aware of the apology. And if she wishes me to go and see her personally and apologize in person, I'll be more than happy to do that.
0: Because even with this compensation of almost $141,000, she still lost about $300,000 of equity in her home. Where does that leave her as far no. as housing and what she does now?
1: In total, she got 300000
0: uh, She got from the purchaser,
1: she got $150,000. And she, from the city now, she's getting 141000 So she got a total of nearly $300,000. At the time, the home was uh, appraised at, I believe, it was four, four twenty-five. Right. So she's a um, hundred and twenty-some odd thousand uh, dollars short. Um, but we went uh, along with the ombudsperson and he, he came to the conclusion of the $141,000 because of the circumstances and the information that he received from the city but did not include uh, in, the, uh, in the report, and his reasoning being uh, that it was too personal um, uh, to, uh, to put it in the report
0: all right but but still looking at that and I, I get what you're saying there's more there's always more than than what we're being told or what we see in yes. in one report, but the bottom line is we still have a, a senior who's a, a member of your community who is out of her house and out about one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars so are you confident that there are changes being made or have been made to stop this from happening again
1: absolutely uh, we're going to Silda, which is the um The the group of all municipalities in the interior of British Columbia, we're taking it to them, and we're hoping they'll support the five recommendations that the ombudsperson put forward. Um, And from there, when it's voted at SILGA, uh, it'll go to UBCM. Um, and we're hoping that it'll get voted there there as well. And then from there, it'll go to the provincial government, which we hope will change the process that they have put in place for the municipalities to deal with um, uh, folks that don't pay their taxes. And, you know, we give them a lead way of uh, four years uh, before anything happens. Um, And unfortunately, this went wrong. And we rectified uh, the error of the past, um, and we took care of it um, on a compassion basis and the, the sympathy that we have um, for Ms. Wilson. And I can tell you, if it hadn't passed, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, to live with myself for a long, long time. I made the motion uh, because I thought it was very, very important to right a wrong Uh, if you want to put it in those terms. And the City of Penticton will also be discussing this in the near future where we'll add more steps to the process to make sure uh, that this never happens again.
0: All right. Well, Mayor Vasilaki, great to have you back on the show uh, with a positive turn in this case. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, and I wish everyone a very...
0: Thanks for being with us. So we are going to talk a little bit more about the advisory that was announced from the federal government earlier today, the advisory on avoiding non-essential travel. Right now, though, we are going to talk about some other type of travel. This was what the transportation minister said earlier this week when talking about how things were looking on some of the highways in B.C.
3: And Let me just say we have zero tolerance for unsafe driving on the Highway 3. I'm sure that many of you saw that recent dash cam footage on the 5A where a commercial truck was dangerously passing on uh, another truck on a double yellow line. Um, that company, I can tell you today, has had its license to operate in B.C. suspended. While the CV- CVSA is going to continue its investigation and its audit of the company, that evidence has directly led to uh, a suspension.
0: Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Let's bring in Dave Earle, President of the BC Trucking Association. Dave Earl, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Oh, Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, before we get to what's happening with highways and reopening, what's your response when you heard that, that that one particular company had its license taken away?
3: You know, it, it's really disappointing to see the video and the conduct, but we are so pleased to see that that company's license to operate has been suspended. Um, That type of behavior, there is no excuse. There is no reason. It cannot be tolerated and it has to be driven completely out of the industry. And so we're really happy to see uh, government take some strong enforcement action.
0: Uh, just today, earlier today as well, a viewer of Global News sent in uh, some video they took. It was a passenger that took video on Highway 3, and it shows a car, just a, a regular sedan, and it's passing at least, I'm counting, two, three, four trucks, and it's passing all on a windy part of the road, it's going into oncoming traffic. Thankfully, there's nobody coming the other way. But another example of dangerous driving, this time not not a truck driver, this was somebody in a car. Are you hearing stories from drivers about conditions like this where other uh, cars and such are putting them in danger?
3: All the time, Jill. I know, and it is just, it's a reflection of, I don't know if it's a lack of patience, a lack of understanding, uh, or not caring. I, I just I don't understand the behavior. Um, you know, when you look at this and recognize that we all share the roadways, we all want to get to where we're going safely, uh, these are you know, extraordinary times, and there's just absolutely no excuse for that type of behavior and decision-making. It just boggles the mind.
0: And and it almost seems like people aren't aware, and even that video was an example. That driver was lucky that there was nobody coming because, again, they're passing on double, solidly yellow lines, and they're passing on curves, and it was snowy. The the Highway 3 had been plowed, but it was very snowy and winter conditions as well.
3: You know, and, and what people don't understand either is they, they deep back in and in front of a commercial vehicle Commercial vehicles are heavy. They take a lot of room to stop and to maneuver. Um, you know, drivers are trained to maintain space between vehicles to ensure that they can come to a safe stop. And when a, you know, a, a light vehicle, uh, you know, deeks back in and slams their brakes on, um, you know, they're taking just a huge, huge risk because that commercial vehicle just can't stop as quickly as a light one does.
0: How has the impact been or how are things going with the Coquihalla closed and with truck drivers having to take the other route?
3: I mean, it's a difficult, difficult drive. Um, you know, when you look at the route, it's steep, it's winding, it's narrow. Uh, when it does open up, we see, you know, people making rash and brash decisions that are creating uh, you know, dangerous circumstances. Uh, it, it's a very, very tough journey for drivers, and, and those that are doing it uh, really deserve some recognition for the critical work they're doing to, uh, to really support all of us. Uh, and they need to catch a break, you know, in, in terms of the behavior on the roads. Um, you know, let's be a little bit patient here, and uh, we'll all get to where we're going.
0: And has it had an impact uh, along with the, the personal, I would imagine, the, the drain on drivers that are having to deal with not only winter conditions and taking this route, having to deal with reckless other drivers? Uh, in addition to that, is it having any impact or a continued impact on supply chains and getting goods to where they need to go?
3: Oh, absolutely, Jill. I mean, when you look at how long it's taking to move around the province, and I mean, this is notwithstanding the, the absolutely just amazing work uh, that contractors and the ministry have done in repairing routes and maintaining routes and trying to keep things going. It's taking so much longer uh, to move goods around. Uh, You know, we hear from our members it's anywhere on on shorter runs, and sometimes it's only taking 50% longer. Other times it's taking two and three times as long. And what that does is just slows everything down. Uh, It's just taking longer to get the goods to where they need to be.
0: So when we hear from the Transportation Minister, and we are expecting an update at 3 o'clock today on the reopening of the Coquihalla, how big of a deal is it that the Hala will reopen earlier than we first anticipated or were first told?
3: Oh, it's, it's monumental. Um, now, it, what's really important to remember, though, is reopening isn't reopening um it's you know opening some extra capacity for commercial trucks Uh, our understanding is that when it does reopen eventually uh, it'll be restricted just to commercial traffic but even then it's not reopening to its full capacity there's going to be lots of areas with you know greatly reduced capacity temporary structures one lane in each direction speed limits reduced um you know it's still going to be a very very long and difficult journey um, just because it opens doesn't mean the weather gets any better. Um, you know. So we've been in a lots of frequent contact with the ministry to make sure that the chain-up provisions are there. We've been in touch with our members and other associations right across the country to make sure that when vehicles get here, they've got the equipment to be able to make it through that route safely. Um, and uh, the government's been very clear we're completely supportive in terms of enforcement. Um, they're going to be very aggressive with enforcement, and we, we couldn't agree more.
0: And have you been given any indication on when that reopening might take place?
3: Uh, not yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might be waiting for 3 o'clock the same as everybody else, you know, to, to see what's happening. But, uh we're hopeful it'll happen as soon as possible, that's for sure.
0: And how big of a deal is it then, like you said, that when it reopens, it's going to, although it won't look the same, the reopening will be to commercial traffic, so trucks will be able to go off of uh, Highway 3, go back to the Coquihalla. Does it make a big difference then they can do that, knowing that at least there shouldn't be non-commercial traffic on the road with them?
3: Oh, it's it's a huge difference. You know, It allows for predictability, it allows for... Uh, consistency, um, you know, it's going to allow for better enforcement and better targeted uh, activities as far as that goes. And the biggest thing that we're really looking forward to is predictability. Uh, Once we know how long it takes and we start to get a regular rhythm back into the supply chain, uh, we can start chipping away at uh, at some of the backlog that exists and uh, really start alleviating some of the congestion.
0: Uh, Did we learn from this as far as being able to shift quickly and getting the the right permits or the uh, approval to go through the United States when needed? Not that we could anticipate that we were going to be cut off from the rest of the country, but what did we learn from this as far as dealing with a situation like that?
3: Yeah, we learned. And I mean, it it was heartwarming. A lot of the the work was actually done uh, many, many years ago uh, in both north and south of the border in terms of what we call in transit moves, uh, recognizing the potential uh, for earthquakes and for infrastructure damage. So a lot of the groundwork, a lot of the contacts uh, have been made over the years. And so uh, when this disaster happened, uh, we weren't. You know, completely set for where we needed to go, but we sure know what needed to happen. Um, So we were able to move a lot more quickly and uh, all levels of government on both sides of the border uh, moved as quickly as they could. And, uh, you know, it was good that we had some of the groundwork laid and, of course, lessons learned from this time will help us be prepared uh, if and when something else should happen in the future.
0: Do you get the impression, and, and I know you, you said you don't have uh, the answers and we'll be getting some more of those uh, at 3 o'clock from the Transportation Minister, but do you get the impression that when the Hala is rebuilt and when the other routes are rebuilt, will they re- be rebuilt kind of bigger and better or do we need to be concerned about this again in the future?
3: Well, I don't know about bigger, but I think certainly everybody's eyes on better. You know, how do we protect the infrastructure that we have? You know, how do we make sure that we have contingencies and we have facilities that are there to protect what, what is built? Um, you know, that's something that's certainly top of mind for everybody as we go through this process. And uh, really, we're looking forward uh, to getting back, uh, you know, to having a fully functional uh, divided highway that uh, connects the lower mainland to the interior.
0: All right. Dave, Earl, always great to check in with you and uh, hoping for some better or some good news uh, at 3 p.m. today. But thanks so much for taking the time with us.
3: Any time at all. Thanks for having me. 1.35
0: 135 on this Wednesday afternoon, we are going to talk a little bit more about the Omicron variant. And joining us to do that is Caroline Colane, a Canadian mathematician and epidemiologist, also holds the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Evolution, Infection and Public Health at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us again. Good afternoon. What do we know at this point about this variant and how transmissible it is?
4: Uh, That's a great question. It is growing fast. Uh, It's growing faster than the previous variants, a lot faster. And in many places, it's doubling every two to four days. So that's a really rapid rate of growth. We don't know exactly whether that's because it's just more transmissible or it's um, able to get into vaccinated or immunized individuals. It's probably some combination of those. So um, that that does pose a challenge just in kind of the sheer numbers that you get if you go, OK, doubling time of four days, that's 40, 80, 160, uh-oh, <laughs> fairly quickly.
0: And how does that compare to what we've seen with other variants? I guess the Delta variant is the one that's still top of mind for everybody.
4: Yeah, exactly. So Delta is is more transmissible than Alpha, which was more transmissible than the original covid And those variants were really, you know, selected for that. They were in populations without a lot of vaccination or past infection. So they were selected for their ability to be transmissible. That's what gave them their advantage. Now we're seeing variants. Omicron is the first and I hope the last um, where the variant has seen selection that favors being able to get into people who've had COVID before or who've been immunized. And that's because it's seeing populations where most people are vaccinated or where most people may have had COVID in South Africa, where it emerged or may have emerged. So So I think that's that's a real difference is that there is um, it, it doesn 't show it doesn 't make the vaccines ineffective, I should say they 're still effective in preventing severe disease, but not as much in preventing infection, which gives the virus a path to get through the population more easily
0: and and is that what we expect though from from viruses that they do mutate and they change, and we have variants, but those variants become while they might be more transmissible, like omicron they 're not more virulent they 're not more dangerous or they 're not going to make you more sick.
4: So I think that for, for COVID, because it transmits before you tend to get severe disease, there isn't really selection acting on on the virus to get less severe. But Omicron is, does look like it's a little bit less severe. Um, I think the challenge is that, you know, the burden on the healthcare system is the, the total number of people <clears throat> times the probability that they need hospitalization or, or that whatever need is, is that they have whatever need. So if the number of people is vastly, vastly higher, even if it's somewhat less severe, maybe 30%, like what came out in a South African document the other day, um, if that's applying to 10 times as many people, that's still a huge burden. And I think that's where we're at now is is facing that chance that it's... Of course, if it was only 1% as severe and only one-one-hundredth of the number of people who would have needed hospitalization need it, that would be really great. But it's not that one-one-hundredth. It's more like... 70%. Seventy percent. So it's not a huge, huge reduction, unfortunately.
0: Even though we we saw those numbers earlier a few days ago in the modeling numbers, that of the the Omicron cases in BC, at least those early numbers showed that that the I think it was forty four cases that there there was no hospitalization hospitalization associated with those particular cases.
4: Um, yeah, and that's you know that that's great, and it's. Because, you know, most of the COVID doesn't put most of the people in hospital. That's not entirely surprising. Um, But I think we do need to pay attention to the data coming from um, South Africa, coming from Denmark, coming from the UK, coming from uh, soon, unfortunately, from other Canadian jurisdictions and and then likely in BC to look at that hospitalization. Because hospitalization, it's not the main outcome. Most people don't get hospitalized. The problem is that enough do that, as we've seen, it can cause pressure on our healthcare systems. Right. And, uh, and the, the very early on, also hospitalization takes a bit of time to happen. You don't sort of get infected and then boom, <laughs> you're in the hospital. So if we wait until we see a problem before we think about it, then it's too late. And it's just if we just use hospitalization.
0: So what does that mean as far as, and like you said, the difference here being because we're dealing with largely vaccinated populations and this variant is still able to infect people, even if it's milder illness, what does that mean as far as how we adapt or how we change what we're doing to try and get out of this thing?
4: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, there's a lot that we can do as individuals. Um, we can have smaller gatherings. When we go to those gatherings, we can open windows and make sure the ventilation is as, as good as we can get it. We can and probably should wear the best quality masks that we can tolerate uh, because that will protect both us from getting infected and the case we infect others. Um, people who have access to rapid tests, that's one way to, um, if you've been exposed and you have access to a rapid test, you think you might have been exposed get that information and then don't go to the next gathering. Um, these are all things that uh, that we can do. Not everyone has access to rapid tests, I know, but th- that's something that, that can be rolled out. Um, so people do have quite a lot of ability to, to bend this curve, and I think we, we should be thinking about those things. And, of course, vaccination. If people haven't had their first dose or their second dose, now is the very best time immediately And if people have been invited for a booster, uh, that's really important. There's good data showing uh, how powerful boosters are uh, for Omicron. So that's an important tool, too.
0: A a couple of things you mentioned there that we are seeing in some other provinces. Uh, Ontario now is going to shorten the gap to get those booster shots, to get that third shot. Other provinces, uh, or Alberta and other provinces, really making sure those rapid tests are available to the population. How much of a change or, or how important are measures like that? Because those are things we've not yet seen in BC.
4: Yeah, it's hard to say. So in, in BC, we did, I think, have a longer interdose interval. We probably have fewer people who are six, over six months past their second dose. Um, I know BC is using boosters and they are focusing on the elderly. So hopefully there will be some protection there from boosters. Um, so I don't know how I don't think anyone knows how BC's mix and match of vaccines and interdose interval will do with Omicron uh, hopefully, it'll be a little better data showing that it's very strong protection. And hopefully, that'll carry over to Omicron. Uh, but I don't think it'll be, you know, the, the magic button that says, OK, like it's completely perfect in BC, even though it's less um, effective against transmission
0: elsewhere. Right. OK. The um, advice from the federal government this morning, the announcement was that they are bringing back the advisory. So this is an advisory against all non-essential travel. We haven't seen a ton. Obviously, we've seen some cases that are linked to travel, but not not the vast majority. How important is it, do you think, as far as stopping the spread of a virus and this particular variant? How much does travel play into that?
4: Yeah, you know, I think travel restrictions, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, they're most useful when you don't yet have community transmission here, right? And that, that chip sailed, that cat, is long out of the bag at, at the national level, at the Canadian level. Um, travel can amplify, you know, the active travel can amplify transmission. And, of course, what you do when you travel is you don't sit at home alone in a, in a room in a box with your laptop. You do things. So those things can amplify transmission. It it may have the benefit of preventing Canadians with Omicron from seeding outbreaks in other jurisdictions in holiday destinations and maybe that's that's worth it, although that maybe is up to the holiday destination to decide whether with their own levels of risk Um, I do think it speaks to the urgency of doing something about Omicron because of the, the urgent challenge that it that it might pose and probably will pose to the healthcare system. So I think it speaks to that. But in terms of limiting cases within Canada, as you say, the majority of transmission will probably already be within Canada. So I don't know that it will have a huge impact there.
0: So would it work better or do you think dealing with something like this when we're talking about the fact that we already have community transmission, does that take us back to testing in that testing? If you are traveling, test when you come back and more testing to see exactly where the transmission is taking place.
4: Yeah, so that can help with preventing introductions. And I think the most important ones to prevent are ones to places that communities within Canada and outside who don't have Omicron yet, if they can by that time and keep it at bay that's a really useful uh, thing about t- travel you know testing travelers and prioritizing travelers for testing if you have widespread community transmission in one place and in another place testing the travelers does not
0: necessarily help you that much and Caroline, going back to, to something you said about the, the reproductive rate or how how transmissible this this variant is, the Omicron variant, what makes the virus more transmissible like that? Or what are we dealing with? It? And could it potentially, I, I know you said we, we hope this is the last one, but are we going to see, or what is the, the possibility of seeing other variants that they just keep becoming more and more transmissible?
4: Right. That's a great question. So what makes Omicron more transmissible., I'm not sure we know completely, but it does have uh, a number of mutations in the spike protein that allow it to kind of evade some of the immune responses. and it also has mutations that allow it to bind better to to ourselves. Um, I think you know selection and evolution are going to continue to act. You know there was a sort of feeling that okay, we have this one pandemic in twenty twenty. Evolutionary biologists were already sounding the alarm about evolution and the, the pressures for increased transmissibility before we even saw alpha. Then we saw alpha, beta, gamma, delta. And we started saying, hey, the next kind of selection will favor immune escape. Now we have Omicron, which may partly be escaping immunity, but not completely. I think the, the risk is that wherever there are large numbers of viruses, large numbers of infections, whether that's in vaccinated people or, or where... That's where selection can act, and we have to anticipate that evolution will will continue to happen. It's not going to stop, and we need to, to be prepared. And I think one way to do that is to really take a more global approach and try to get infection numbers low everywhere through equitable vaccine distribution, coordinated responses, because evolution will act where there are large virus populations.
0: All right. Caroline, thank you so much, as always, for coming on the show and uh, talking about the very latest in this. Appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Thank you.